Good evening, everyone. We are, as you can see, in Aseret Yemet Shuvah. We're continuing our series. Today it's number eight. Two days ago, I gave a lecture about Yom Kippur, an hour and 40 minutes, all the preparation for Yom Kippur, include Yom Kippur itself, what to do, how to do, and why. I suggest each one of you will watch it. It's called Yom Kippur. That's the name of that lecture. It's already on. We made a special efforts to, put, to make it available within 24 hours. It's not easy, but uh, just because to give enough time for people to prepare. Uh, anyway, I don't know if you're aware of the news, but uh, that a lot of people are dying these days. You know, in Israel, there's a... Can you raise your voice a little? Yeah, there's a Haredi in Israel. There's a person, religious person, he hit a woman with three kids with a car. The woman was pregnant, he killed her. A few hours later, she died with the baby. They, tried, they took the baby out, but he died also. There's a lot of tragedies. Many bad things happened in the last few days. All this was in Rosh Hashanah. Rosh Hashanah, Hashem already signed on it. Horrible things. And Bezrat Hashem, uh, we'll see how this year is going to turn. It doesn't look good, uh, to be honest. You know, today the Arabs shot two missiles. They shot many missiles, but two of them were special. They already have like, a, I don't know even how to say it in English. It's called Zarkhan. What, what? Zarkhan, how do you say it in English? Um, no, 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 that's fine. It's illegal. It's, a, it's in, against international regulations, these bombs. Phosphor. Phosphor. Nerve? No, not nerve. Phosphor. Zarkhan, it's some kind of a chemical thing. So, yeah, yeah, so... You, know, you never know. The next thing, these crazy people, you can throw some kind of a chemical weapon and kill 10,000 people in a minute. There's no end to, the, to how much they want to murder. You know, they try to murder as much as they can. And that's where we are, this is what we're dealing with, from south, from north, from west, from everywhere. Okay, we'll continue. If you remember last time, before Rosh Hashanah, uh, just one more thing. Next week we won't have a shiur because it's Erev Chag Sukkot. And the following week also we don't have because it's the second uh, Shmini Atzeret. But right after that we're going back on schedule every week. And we'll try to make it 8.30. There's no reason to start 9. We can do it. You know, if, uh, we can start, try to start at 8.30. Okay, so the last time, the last thing we spoke in the last uh, series, number 7, it was 7 people Arminudim Lashamaim. They put on isolation and they lose their blessing. And we spoke about who are those seven people. And uh, if you remember briefly, someone who's not getting married, someone who has a wife but doesn't have children and he doesn't uh, give her a get after 10 years because a man has an obligation to have kids, at least a boy and a girl to fulfill the first mitzvah in Judaism, which is Pruvu. Someone who has kids but doesn't teach them Torah. Someone who doesn't put the feeling in his arm and in his head. Or tzitzit, the stripes in a clothing that has four corners. Someone, and doesn't have mezuzah in his door. And someone who walks barefoot. Uh, there's one more opinion that it's actually eight. The eighth one. 
it's uh, in an argument. Someone will see people gathering to do a mitzvah together and ignore it, doesn't participate with them. That's also not good. Okay. No, but walking barefoot is disrespect. Yeah, disrespect for a Jew to walk barefoot. The Torah is very strict against the Chachamim not to walk barefoot. Uh, so in the old days, to get uh, shoes was a mission. It wasn't easy. Not like today, you go, you go to Walmart, you buy shoes for $10, $12. Even poor people can afford every six months to buy shoes. In the old days, it was all handmade. They have to custom made to make it. It's all from leather. They didn't have the equipment of today. It was expensive. It's not so simple, yeah. Huh? Cannot hear you. No, all over the world. Doesn't apply only in Eretz Israel. Everywhere. Okay, let's let's start. Uh, we we still in Masechet Psachim. Hopefully, we'll be able to finish it. Amar Rabbi Yochanan. Rabbi Yochanan says, "Kashim mezonotav shel adam kiflaim keyoleda." Feeding a person is difficult for Hashem double difficulty than helping a woman to give birth. A woman who gives birth is a big miracle. Why? That thousands of a second that the baby comes out, a miracle happened. The cord that feeds him, right? Once he comes out, they disconnected the cord. That means he cannot get from his mother any energy anymore. He has to get it from the world. So there's like a valve that flip over. And now he's able to breathe, because if, if, if his nose would be open inside and his mouth, he will choke to death. That millionth of a second that he needs it to open up, it's always open up. Very interesting. For the breath and for the food. Right? So there's a major change in the way he's going to eat and breathe from now on. And that's why this is a very big miracle. Not to talk about all the other miracles, to get him out to, on the right time, that he won't be upside down, and, and many other things. All this, it's not even half difficult for Hashem than to feed a person. Wow, what's the point here? You know that every time we use the term, it's difficult for Hashem, we're not talking physically. Hashem made the whole world in less than a second. That's not, nothing is difficult for Him. When we say it's difficult for Hashem, we means that the people don't have the merit to be deserved to get the food. And Hashem has to go and make all kinds of tricks to be able to feed the people and not starve them to death. One other expression the Gemara may use is Kashim Adam Yoter Yamsuf. Feeding a, making a soulmate, find a, matching soulmates to get a husband to a wife, to a wife to a husband, is difficult to Hashem, like splitting the ocean in the exodus of Egypt. What's difficult about opening the ocean and making the Jews go through? It's not difficult. It's difficult because the Satan is objecting. He said, it's not fair. Why are you making miracles to them and not to the Egyptians? The Egyptians worship idols, and they're just as bad. They also don't have faith in you. If they had faith in you, they would cry and scream like they are. Well, why do they deserve a miracle? And Hashem doesn't have what to answer. And who saves the situation? Nachshon ben Aminadav, that he goes into the water and the Satan was silent. 
Which means if he wouldn't do it, Hashem wouldn't have an answer for the Satan. And we have to understand, when you deal with Hashem, you deal with the ultimate justice, with the God of the truth, the God of the justice. It's not a politician that does whatever he wants according to his needs. It doesn't work that way. So if the symbol of justice, the pure truth, cannot be deceiving, cannot be a liar, cannot go and choose one from the other, where is the justice? It has to be in a justice. And sometimes we make it very difficult for him because technically many of us don't deserve even to get food based on the sin. Why? Why we don't deserve to get food? Why? The dogs get food, the worms get food, the flies get food, the mosquitoes have blood as much as they want. Why we don't get it? We're worse than them. The answer is they deserve to get it because they are not criminals. No animal in a history was ever a criminal. Whatever the animals do, even if they knock down the Twin Towers, they're still not, not uh, criminals. Why? They don't have a free choice. Whatever happened, happened. It's instinct. What's supposed to happen? Hashem is using them for his missions. He wants to kill someone, he sends the lion. He wants to prevent people from coming into someone's house, he puts a dog over there or a snake. The animals don't have a free choice. And the animal is not guilty of anything. There's no problem for Hashem to send the, 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 the animal as much food as they need. Uh, the, the chick inside the egg, who gives him his food? The mother cannot feed him through the shell. The shell is sealed. How? The minute Hashem makes the, 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 the birds growing inside the egg, is already supplying enough food for the entire time that is going to stay there. It's already prepared. Everything is prepared. But for a person, they have a pro- there's a problem. Why? Because when Hashem comes to give enough food for a person, what's the Satan come and say? Why are you giving him food? He's going to eat this food, right? And use the energy from that food to do things against you. He's going to make sins. You're giving him food. Thanks to this food, he's going to uh, make sins on Shabbat. Thanks to this food, he's able to walk to bad places. Thanks to this food, he's making sins with the ladies. Why are you giving him food? Let him starve to death. Why are you keeping him here? That's a problem. Hashem is a problem. Why am I giving a gasoline to a car that is going to drive on Shabbat? By the way, you should know that the halacha is, almost nobody keeps this halacha, unfortunately, that a Jew that he, he loves Hashem and he follows the Torah is not allowed to give any tzedakah to a person that is not Shomer Shabbos. That's the truth. People go by with their heart, so they cannot really follow this halacha. Most people ignore that halacha. But really, if you give tzedakah to a wicked Jew, you are burying him, you are actually destroying him faster. Why? Before you gave him the money, he couldn't afford to drive on Shabbat. He doesn't have money for gas. Now you give him a hundred dollars, he's able to go and put gas in his car and drive the entire Shabbat and make five million sins. What made him make the sins that then he has to pay for each one of them separately? Your money. Same thing, you're not allowed to give food to a Jew that you know is not going to make a bracha. Not allowed to serve him, not allowed to give him in his hand. If you, if you have a, a, an embarrassment, if people are watching, you're afraid of Chilul Hashem, no. So you put it on a table, let him take on his own. The different when you serve it to his hand, or you put it on the table and he came and took. The difference, why? Because this is an indirect serving. 
you didn't put it in his hand. Same thing if a person killed directly and indirectly is not the same punishment. If he kills directly with his hand, he stabs somebody, it has to be put to death by the base din, by the Jewish court, based on the testimony of two witnesses. But if he tie him to a tree and put the lion next to him and the lion ate him up, you can, the court cannot execute him. Hashem will take care of him, for sure. You cannot escape the punishment, but the base din cannot kill him. Why? Because he didn't kill with his hand. Same thing, he tie him and make fire here. And the fire went by itself and killed him. Why? What's the difference? Because when he did it indirectly, he left him, I don't know, one or two percent chance to get saved. Why? A miracle can happen. Maybe the building will, not, will be knocked down. Maybe a person will walk in and see fire and put it off. Somebody will untie the rope. Still a one to a million chance that he's going to get saved. So in a way, you see that Hashem could have saved him in that way. It, it, it wouldn't look such a big miracle. Oh, somebody walked in, oh, a fire, and he saved him. It happens all the time. So it's not 100%, it's 99%. 99%, let Hashem take care of him. This is how it works. So here the same thing. Amar Rabbi Yochanan, Kashim shel adam ki keyoleda, twice as hard as, as delivering a baby. What does the Torah speaking about a woman that gives birth? You're going to give birth with etzev. Etzev comes from the word atzabim, nerves. Anger, not anger, frustration. I don't know the right word. Atzabim, if a person has atzabim, that means he's very upset, very angry, very disappointed. Everything combined. No, suffer, it's isurim, it's a different thing. Etzev. Which is even harder. When you're going to eat, it's going to be harder. Amar Rabbi Elazar, Kashim mezonotav shel adam ki kriyat yamsuf. Feeding a person, he gives another analogy here, another example. We said before, it's that it's twice as hard as giving birth. Now Rabbi Elazar say, it's equal, equal, not twice as hard, equal to splitting the ocean. Amar Rabbi Yochanan, again Rabbi Yochanan, kashim mezonotav shel adam yoter mina geula. It's harder to feed a person than bringing the Mashiach. Can you believe what we're saying here? When Hashem is speaking about salvation, the salvation of a person, not necessarily Mashiach, any kind of salvation. What are we saying? Amalach, the angel who saves me from all bad. Malach be'alma, ve'ilu be'mezonot k'tiv, ha'elokim ha'ro'eoti. To save a person, to send salvation to a person, Hashem sends with a, an angel, with a malach. But to feed a person, what does it say? Ha'elokim ha'ro'eoti. Hashem is feeding me. Hashem is my shepherd, like the shepherd taking care of the, of the sheep. Amar Rabbi Yoshua ben Levi, when Hashem said to Adam, first Adam, you're going to have thorns and bushes coming from the ground for you. That was his punishment after he made the sin. So Adam was crying. Zalgu maot, he had tears. So he said to Hashem, Hashem, are you saying that me and the donkey will eat from the same plate? The donkey eats 
uh, weeds and uh, all kinds of things, you know, like thorns, whatever it is. I'm, that means my food is going to be like the donkey. We're going we're gonna to eat the same way from the ground. So Hashem told him, When you're going to eat your bread, you're going to sweat for it. It's going to be very hard to make a living. Very hard to make a living. But Hashem say lechem. Not thorns. Not uh, weeds and all kinds of things. Grass, whatever. So Adam relaxed a little bit. Nitkarira da'ato. Even though it's, uh, he just got the worst curse that you can think of. <laughs> we suffer for 5,700 years because of that curse. All the problems that comes to a person, all the problems with emunah, faith, not religious, yes, religious, is all somehow connected to Parnassah, to make a living, right? But when he found out that he's going to eat bread, no, at least it's bread, and not, I'm not going to eat like a dog, like a donkey. When Nimrod knocked down Avraham Avinu, wicked Nimrod, which was a king, he knocked, he pushed Avraham Avinu into the furnace. angel Gabriel came to Hashem and said, give me permission to go into the fire and cool it, to save the righteous person from the fire, to save this dear Avraham from the fire. Amar lo HaKadosh Baruch I am single in my world, and he is single in his world. The single has to save the single. The same way I'm special in my world, nobody is coming even close to me. I'm a category by itself. And he's so special in this world, in this earth, that it's not respect for him that an angel will go and save him. I have to go and save him like I served Bnei Israel from Mitzrayim, what do we saying in the Haggadah? We praise Hashem that He say, Ani velo malach, me and not an angel. So the single deserve to say the single deserve to be saved by a single. It's a rule by Hashem that every creature deserves gets his reward one way or the other, soon or later, but for sure will get his reward. Amarlo, since you are, you suggested that you want to go and save the tzaddik, it's a mitzvah for you, even though the malach doesn't have yetzer hara, doesn't have mitzvot. That's the argument Moshe had with the malachim when he went to Shamaim to bring the Torah. They didn't want. So give us the Torah. Why are you giving it to them? Look, what are they going to do with that? So Moshe said, you have Yetzer Hara, what do you need the Torah for? We need it, without it we cannot become righteous. So Hashem told him, since you wanted to do a mitzvah, I cannot deprive you from your uh, merit. You're going to save three of his grandchildren. Right? When, when did it happen? When Nebuchadnezzar pushed Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah to the furnace, right? Amar Yurkemi. Who is Yurkemi? The angel that is in charge of the 
of the slash. Slash, you know that it's not snow and not water. Ice in between. He's in charge. He's in charge of the snow. He's in charge of it. He says to Akadosh Bahuri Bonoshalam, let me go and cool the furnace and save the three righteous people. Amarlo Gavriel, it's not honor for Hashem for you to do it. Because everybody knows that water is the enemy of the fire. Water puts off the fire, no? <laughs> it's not gonna look a miracle, water falling on the fire. Ela Ani, I am the minister of the fire. Malach Gavriel, I'm in charge of the fire. Let me go inside fire, inside the fire, and cool the fire from inside. I control the temperature. And I'm going to make a miracle inside a miracle. And Hashem says, right, he's going. And that's when Hashem paid back Malach Gavriel, Angel Gavriel, and the angel say, Ve'emet Hashem le'olam alleluia. That's what we say every morning in a prayer. It came from this, from this act. Ve'emet Hashem le'olam alleluia. It comes from here. Now, it's very interesting, because if you know the story of Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, when they pushed them into the fire, Chazal told us that if they beat them up, they wouldn't be able to tolerate the test. They wanted them to bow down to these idols. And they said, no. And so we throw you into the fire. So they throw us into the fire. So they gave their life not to do Avodah Zarah, not to worship an idol. So the, 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 we learn from here, from that story, the story, clearly it says that if they would beat them up, they wouldn't be able to tolerate that. They would surrender. So one Chacham asked, I don't understand. If you come to praise three righteous people, the best in history, you can put them in the top of the pyramid. How many people willing to throw themselves into a fire not to bow down to the idol? Most people say, let me bow down to the idol, get rid of them. One year I'll pray all day for Hashem to forgive me and I make tshuva. That's what most people think, no? No, it's, a, it's an honor for me. I'm honored to give my life for not violating Avodah Zarah. It's one of the three things a person should give his life and not, not to do, right? To murder, Gilui Arayot, right? And Avodah Zarah, those three sins you're not allowed to do. So the Chacham asks, if you finally come and compliment them for their sacrifice, why do you have to ruin it by saying that if they beat them up, they wouldn't tolerate the test? Leave it unknown. Not everything you have to say. We're not telling you to lie, but not to say anything. It's not a lie. Make it look better. The answer is to teach us a very important rule in the way Hashem is ruling His creation. What's the rule? The rule is, the rule is, nobody ever got or will get a test that it cannot handle. Hashem doesn't give a person a test that that person could not be successful in that test. Remember that. So sometimes when you see a person got a very, very hard test, you say, ah, what chance he had to pass this test? Nobody can pass this test. If Hashem gave it to that person, he was able to get saved from that test. If he didn't, he didn't do everything he could. You know, it reminds me, one time I heard an amazing story. 
You know, Rabbi Ovadia Yosef, when he was younger, he used to travel more, like overseas, to places, to teach Torah, to give lectures. One, one time he was invited to London, in, in England, <coughs> and it was like a weekend in hotel, Shabbaton, so he's supposed to, give, to speak on Shabbat, a large audience, hundreds of people. He went to the bathroom before the lecture starts. And then he realized that once he entered the bathroom, there's a laser there, you know? So he knew if he's gonna move, the light will go off. The light goes on and off by seeing a person. It's detector, automatic. When you come, he, di he didn't realize, he didn't know that. He walked in, the light went on. So he knew if I'm gonna go out now, the light will go off. So I cannot move. And he hear outside, the host is screaming to all the people, Shake it, we want to start the lecture of the rabbi. I want to invite Chacham, Rabbi Ovadia Yosef, please, everyone rise. You hear people clapping, and now he's stuck in the bathroom. And he hear that they say it again and again, and he say, where is the rab? Where? He hear all this outside. And he's not, he's a big test. So, well, what does Hashem want? What, he wants me not to do the lecture? How can it be because of this lousy light? Just when he's standing over there, he's frozen over there, one little goy came in, one little kid goy walked into the place. Just when the boy went in, right, he knew that the body of the boy will be a replacement for my body, so the light won't, won't go out. So he jumped out. The guy went into the, it's a, it's a little bathroom, a room, you know, with few bathrooms divided. When the boy won, went in, he quickly jumped out, and then the guy can do as much or whatever he wants, and he got saved. But Hashem doesn't give this kind of, of test to every speaker. Some speaker wouldn't be able to tolerate the embarrassment. I call your name 10 minutes. <laughs> he was just here, where he disappeared, what's going on, you know? I remember uh, many years ago when I, when I lived in Lower East Side, we wanted to do a shortcut from the indoor parking, from the shul. There's a ramp, you go down, and then you go right into the building so you don't have to go around. One thing I didn't know, that this indoor parking has a bell, that every car who goes in, they go down, right, it's underground. It, it makes a big dong all over the place for the people to know to come see who came. So just when me and my cousin went in, we hear pow all over. So I said to my cousin, you realize what happened? There's no cars here. It was because of us. So now we want to go from the other side. You know, there's ramp here and ramp in the other side. It's a shortcut. So well, I think we're going to have to spend Shabbat in a, in a parking here. Cannot come out. He got nervous. He said, wow. I said, no, no, I have an idea. Let's wait until a car comes in. Wait, we wait right here be, be, before the line. Just when a car comes in, as soon as you hear the dong, we run outside. <laughs> and that's what happened. A car, a few minutes later, a car came in. We ran out. This, this, this is test. That test was much easier than 800 people waiting for you to start your lecture. Rabbi Nathan Omer, Ve'emet Hashem le'olam. 
What's this explanation of this pasuk? The truth of Hashem is forever. No. It says like this. Israel Shebeoto Ador, the Jews in that generation, were very small, very low in their emuna. Ktane emuna. They don't have so much emuna faith in Hashem. As I said before, because the Satan has, uh, is objecting. Why were they so afraid, the Jews, when the Egyptians came to attack them? Don't they trust Hashem? Hashem did so many miracles for them for the last year in Egypt. Why can't they relax and trust Hashem? So it says like this, maybe the Egyptians are making an ambush. Some of them come from here, the other ones go around. And when we cross the ocean, even if Hashem opens it for us, they'll be waiting for us on the other side. There's no way to run from them. It's such an army. They can send million soldiers. Who knows? Amar lo HaKadosh Baruch Hu Lassar Shelayam Hashem say to the angel of the oceans, is in charge of the ocean, plot otam layabasha, take all the bodies of the Egyptians and vomit them into the beach, into the land. Amar lefanav, the angel say to Hashem, Hashem, it's not fair. Why are you making me get rid of all these thousands of bodies, or hundreds, whatever it was? He say, did you ever see a slave that his master gave him a gift and the master come a minute later and wants it back? Which means you are shame, you are the master, and I'm your servant, you just gave me a gift. What is the gift? All these bodies. What does he need the bodies? To feed all the fish. The fish, the sharks, they're all going to eat. Now you're taking it back? Hashem told him, whatever I'm taking back from you, I will give you back with interest. One and a half times more. Just have patience. He says, Hashem, you're leaving me no choice. Can I take you to Bedin? What, can I sue you? <laughs> you ever heard a servant that sue his master to, to a Bedin? Hashem says to him, you don't need to sue me. You don't need to sue me. Nachal Kishon, the lake of Kishon, will be a guarantor. I give you my word, is the witness that you, the time will come and I'll pay you back. Right away, he threw all of them to the land. When the Jews saw, they relaxed. They stopped panicking. They were very panicking. And that's what we say in the Torah, in Shemot, Exodus 14, Vayar Israel et Mitzrayim met al Sfatayam. We say it every morning in a tefillah, right? Vayar Israel et Mitzrayim met al Sfatayam, right? Hashem saw, the nation of Israel saw Egypt is dead on the land next to the ocean, right? What does it mean one and a half times, the Gemara asks? Beparo, the army of Pharaoh was 600 carriages. Soldier, each soldier has his carriage with a horse, right? 600 carriages. Follow them. Ve'ilu besisra, later in history, sisra, with his army, 900 rechev barzel. 
900 carriages, they all died. When do we learn to blow the shofar 101 times? From the Torah, we have to do only nine times. Nine times you blow, finish. But the Chachamim say, no, nine times it's not enough. You have to do 101 times in different variations. Like this, sitting, standing, in the middle of tefillah, before the tefillah. What's going on here? What is this? Because they learned from the mother of Sisra. When she heard that her son, the king, died, this is how she cried. This is how she cried. So they say that one, one t- the first cry was for him. All the other hundred times was for herself. Why? When a person cries for somebody who died in his family, who does he really cry for? For himself or for that person who died? For himself. He doesn't cry for him. If you know your father is a big, big, big tzaddik, big tzaddik, you know him all your life, you saw him, he's learning, he's never speak Lashonara, he gives tzedakah, he's honest, he's decent, he's Oev Hashem, everything is perfect. And he passed away age 90. What's the point of crying for him? Should make a party. Finally, he went to heaven. Oh, it took so many years. Right? So the answer is, why are we really crying? We're crying that we're going to miss him. Same thing a mother put her son, he's going to yeshiva for three months, she won't see him. He's flying away, let's say he's in Israel or who knows where. She doesn't really cry for her boy. She knows he's going to the best place. going to see it, learn Torah, friends, this. It's the best thing can happen to him. So if it's for him, I should be dancing for him. Finally, he's going to such a good place instead of being in this garbage neighborhood where we live, no? She should be very happy. But she's crying because she's going to miss him. Everything that we're crying for, in, re- in, in reality, we cry for ourselves, not for what we think we're crying for. You know the, the, the story that they say about the chocolate? One boy, they took away the chocolate from him. So screaming, screaming for the chocolate. Give me, give me. So why are you crying so much for the chocolate? He said, because I love chocolate. So if you love chocolate, why when I'm going to give it back to you, you're going to smash it to pieces and eat it? Own it. You love it, you put it on the shelf, you, you watch it, you put it in the safe. Right? You don't love the chocolate, you love yourself. Taking the chocolate away from you, you don't care about the chocolate. You care about the desire that you thought that you're going to get, and it went away. That's the truth. So the same thing here. So the Gemara says like this. It says like this, Vayar Israel et Mitzrayim et al Sfatayam. And with Sisra, 900 carriages that they all died and the fish had plenty of food from all these soldiers. Amar le HaKadosh Baruch Hu Nachal Kishon. Now it's time for you to pay your, your guarantor. Now it's your co-signer. You have to pay. Ashlem. They died in Nachal Kishon. Nachal Kishon, it's not the ocean. It's a, lake, it's a river that connects to the ocean. Hashem said to the lake, don't hesitate. Push them towards the, the ocean. Remember, we owe the ocean 900 bodies. And Nachal Kishon pushed them back into the ocean. Amar Rabbi Yehuda Amar Shmuel. All the money and the gold that you see, Yosef, Yosef gathered everything in Egypt. 
Yosef became the treasury of Egypt. Since uh, the story with the dreams that he saw that the seven bad years are coming, he had seven years to prepare. How did he make so much money for Pharaoh? How? People ran out of food. Now, what, if you have a hundred million dollars in your bank account and you don't have food, the money that you have worth something doesn't worth anything, right? You're going to die anyway. What's the point, right? If there won't be food left in the world, but there will be plenty of diamonds and gold and, and, and all kinds of jewels, the value of the jewels will be zero. Nothing. You cannot eat it. It's not worth anything. We're going to die anyway. Since the people had nothing to eat, they ran to Egypt, give us food. When Yosef realized there's no more food left anywhere else, only in Egypt, because they store tons of food. Tons of for seven years, storing from morning to night all over Egypt. Storages are packed. Wheat, rice, everything. Nowhere in the world is food. If the rice was $15 a bag, like they sell here in Costco, $15 a bag, and there's nowhere in the world, I make the prices. So I said, $150 a bag. That's the price. What can I do? There is no choice. So then they begin to pay $150, but they, now they ran out of cash. So what's the next thing? Next time they come, six months later, with their horses and donkeys, they say, okay, give us wheat, rice. Where is the cash? So we don't have cash. We have gold, we have necklaces, we have some diamonds. This is what we have, but we don't have any cash left. You say, okay, let's evaluate the jewelry. Okay, you have uh, 50 ounces of gold. I'm giving you $200 an ounce. But Yosef, it's $1,400 almost, $1,300 an ounce of gold. Why are you giving me only $200? He said, take it or leave it. Business. So they don't have a choice. So they give tons of gold for a few bags of flour. There's nothing to do. Next time they come, they don't even have gold. So Yosef said, well, what, what are you paying me with? We don't have anything. We have houses. That's all what we have left. Some horses, some houses. So, okay, leave the horses here. <laughs> Take one or two, whatever you can. That's it. Sell the horses. Give me. And he cleaned them from everything they had. In reality, in the end, basically everything they had, they had to mortgage for peanuts to survive those seven years. Think about it. Even today in the world, situation like this can happen. If one country knew in advance that it's going to be seven years, let's say in the rest of the world there will be an, a nuclear war, and one country won't get affected from it, but all the other countries are all finished. No trees, no vegetables, all the storages have, uh, uh, what do you call it, radiation? radiation. That's it. You cannot get food anywhere else. What happened to this little tiny country, even the size of Israel, that have food? The value of the food, even for the Israelis, will be impossible to bear. Nobody will be able to eat. An ounce of, uh, of, of bread will be a million dollars. There's nowhere to get. This is actually what's happening, but it's slowly, slowly, it's happening now in the world because of China and India. China and India, if it's not going to be a nuclear war this year, as it seems that it's going to be, they are the biggest threat to the world, these two countries. India is not known as an aggressive country that likes to go to wars and occupy, at least not in modern time. But India is a very big threat to the world. 
And China, even though China, they have a massive army and they have a lot of people, they're also not known as such an aggressive, aggressive nation. Napoleon, 200 years ago, with his Ruach cottage, he says, Napoleon says, let the Chinese bear rest, because when they wake up from their sleep, we all regret it. What did he mean? That was clever. He said, when these Chinese will open up their eyes and start become business people, and they can start do business, all you need is two or three percent of them to become wealthy, and the world is finished. Why? They have two billion Chinese with restriction on birth. It's already 30 or 40 years that they cannot have more than one kid in a family. If they didn't have this restriction on birth, it would be six billion Chinese today, 40 years later. Multiply four or five kids in a family, it will be the end of the world. They are not worried about the world, for sure. That's not what concerns them. They worry about themselves, because to feed six billion people, it's a disaster. You know, a hundred years ago, one philosopher, he wrote that the world will not be able to survive. Why? The, the tempo of the multiplication, multiplication of the people, it's much faster than how much food is growing. The food is growing in certain rate, and the people are growing in a much faster rate. Which means in X amount of years, I don't remember the numbers, there will be no food left in the world and the world will, be, will come to an end. People will kill for a piece of bread. In reality, miracles happen and there's still plenty of food to everyone almost, right? But what I'm trying to say is like this. Why today everything becomes so expensive? Gold became, it was $300, it became $1,300 almost. Why? Because of China. Why, why rice used to be $7 a bag, it became $21 a bag, and now it went down a little bit, but it will continue to go up because of China. Why everything that you buy today, plastic, metal, stones, clothing, everything goes up all the time. Inflation everywhere. It keeps going higher and higher. Taxes are going higher. To build building becomes more expensive. Why? Even when there's no demand in America for it, that the prices should dump to nothing, it's still going up. Today, it's a ridiculous situation in America. Ridiculous. What does it mean, ridiculous? If you want to build a building in Florida, it will cost you more than double than to receive it ready without the aggravation. If you come, a builder just finish it. You come to him and say, I want to buy your building. I'll tell you a million dollars for the whole building. If you wanted to build it now from scratch, it will cost you more than two million. You don't have the one-year aggravation that he went through. It's always a waste of like a slave, doing nothing all year. Phone calls, traveling, shipping, arguing, courts, problem, deliveries. In the end, he didn't get paid for his work, and he lost from his pocket. That's, that's what's happening in almost every state in America now, almost every state. Not so much in an ultra-religious neighborhood, the value is still okay. It went down maybe 10, 20 percent, but in a, I went to Arizona, 800,000 became 200,000. I went to Vegas, you can buy an apartment for $15,000, brand new apartment, three bedrooms, $15,000. To build it will be $80,000, to build an apartment like this. Just the labor. 
Why the situation like this? Why? What's going on here? Because in China, when they used to be very primitive, maybe a tenth of a percent of the people were wealthy, could afford a car. No, almost nobody in China 10 years ago had a car. One to a million maybe had a car. Everyone had bicycle or, or, or donkeys, they're all farmers, they live in houses that they build by themselves. One flood, 80,000 Chinese fly with all their couches, everything, they go on like a boat. A whole house, with every, it happens every day there. Just now when they started to become business, everything is made in China, made in India, made in China, made in India. They became very wealthy over there because all the factories are over there. So 2% two, two more of the Chinese people became wealthy. How much is 2% from 2 billion? It's tens of millions of people. Tens of millions of people can afford now a car they couldn't afford before. So now they're selling everything to China. So the, there's a lot of demand. So the, the prices of the cars continue to go higher and higher. Everything become higher, food, because they need to eat, they eat more, they became wealthy. They are, that's why they are the biggest threat to the world. But this is naturally. Lucky us, we know that Hashem runs the world, in all, it's all one miracle. Nature is nature, and Hashem's ways is above nature, and especially to the Jews, because we are above nature. We are me'ala teva. The Jews is me'ala teva. Elohim is numeric value 86. Ha-teva, the nature, ha-teva, in Hebrew, numeric value also 86. To tell you whatever you think is nature, it's really me, it's no nature. I'm running everything. One example is the water. The water, what happened to the water? Did you ever investigate how the water behaves? Very interesting, the water. The water is, like every other material, every other material, when you heat it, it expands. When you cool it, it shrinks. Everything else, the same thing, the water. But the water, when it gets to four degrees Celsius, very close to 32 Fahrenheit, like 35, 36, the water all of a sudden goes against the law of nature. Up to now, the water comply with the laws of nature. You hit me, I become a gas, expand, and I fly up. You cool me, I become ice, right? That's what it's supposed to be. But what happened, when it gets to four, four degrees, it's the opposite. And from now on, the more you cool it, instead of shrink, it expands. Why? Becomes the upper, against the laws of nature. Because if it would continue to behave in the same way, the top layer of the oceans, which is 72% of the world is ocean, 72%. So imagine now, the top layer of all the ocean will become three or four feet of ice. What would happen to it? It would sink to the bottom of the ocean, right? Because it's heavy. If it goes with the laws of nature, it's heavier. So it will all sink to the bottom of the ocean. A few hours later, the top layer of the ocean will become ice and sink to the bottom. A few hours later, another layer would sink to the ocean. In about a day or two or a week or a month, whatever it takes, all the oceans will become ice. All the fish will die. 
No, so you say, no, big deal. So we won't have oceans. So we won't have fish. So the ocean become a cobblestone, sidewalk. One big, huge sidewalk. You walk over it. Nice. Ice skating. No. What's going to be the problem? The problem is, you, you probably think, well, we won't have water to drink. No. You can heat up water and melt it. And you have plenty of water, it's no problem. It will cost a lot more money, water. Instead of a dollar a bottle, it will be five dollars a bottle. Because you're gonna need water, and that's not the problem. The problem when the summer comes, 72% of the world, thousands of, of, kilo, of meters or feet under the ground, massive big chunk of ice, all become, in a week, it's all melt, and it creates flowing of water towards the land, and it's not a tsunami, it's a billion times bigger than a tsunami, and kill the whole world. So to prevent such a disaster, what's the point of creating the world and, make, and, and in one season the world is over? What's the point? It's defeat the purpose. So Hashem needed to change the law of nature for the water. And this other example, let me ask you a question. What, light, light, the light from the sun. What is it? Is it spiritual or it's physical? The light. The light that you see during the day from the sun. Light is physical or it's spiritual. The sun, what is it, the sun? Fire, right? The sun is a ball of fire. Fire, it's physical or spiritual? Physical. It eats physical. It eats wood. Physical goes to physical. Okay. So the fire is physical. But the light that comes from the fire or from the sun, is it physical or spiritual? What do you think? I'll give you a hint. Everything physical, if it moves, it has a speed, right? A car moves 80 miles an hour. So that's the speed of the car, right? The speed of all kinds of things. The birds are flying in X amount of speed. The, the light... Also have a speed. The light that comes from the sun to earth travel 300,000 kilometers in a second. Every second, 300,000 kilometers in a second. Just to give you an idea, to go to Israel back and forth, I think it's 15,000 kilometers. That's it. So it's like 7,500 kilometers to fly to Israel. So the light does in one second 300,000 kilometers. Understand what we're talking here about? Very fast. My question to you is, so we see that the light travels in a certain speed. So what is the light? It has to be physical, right? But now we have a problem. What's the problem? That's what confused the scientists. Nobody knows the answer to this question. It's a 50-50 question. Draw. Teco. Teco. Why it's a draw? Nobody can prove why. Because you can say one way or the other. That was the proof that the light is physical. Now let's give the proof that it's spiritual. What's the proof? When the light hit a wall, let's say a black wall is here, the light comes from the sun, psh, hit, the, hit the wall. What happened to the light? The other side of the wall, it's become very dark, right? Because the wall blocked 80% of the light. 20% went through, through the wall, and now you see a little bit light on the other side. It's not completely dark. Some of the light penetrates and came out from the other side. 
So the, the wall, the darker it is, it absorbs the light. The, the lighter it is, it absorbs less light. So more light will go from the other side. That's the law of physics. But now we have a very interesting thing. When finally it takes two, one or two seconds for the light to penetrate and go to the other side of the wall, what happened to the light on the other side of the wall? What speed it travels? If you throw a wall on a, on a, uh, on a, a ball on the wall, what, the wall, the ball was traveling, let's say, in 100 miles an hour. When it hit the wall, what happened? It stopped it completely and bounced it back. But let's say it was a very, very thin sheet rack, very thin. He hit it, it broke it, and he went to the other side. The ball doesn't travel 100 miles an hour. It drives four miles an hour, three, two, one, zero, and it stops, right? Why? The, 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 this is a resistance. The wall stopped the light and made it stop. The ball. The wall stopped the ball. What happened with the light? An amazing thing. Once it's finally penetrated through the wall, it accelerates back to 300,000 kilometers a second. Not 301, not 305, not 290. Exactly 300,000 kilometers a second. That's when the scientist gives up. They don't understand. How can it be? The light doesn't have any engine, any motor, any source of energy that push it back to 300,000 kilometers. What makes the light accelerate back to 300,000 kilometers a second? I don't understand. By itself. By itself. Nobody pushed the light. You don't send it with projector or something, like with a fan or something that you push the light. It doesn't work that way. By itself, the light travels again 300,000 kilometers a second. That's why they get confused. They say it doesn't act like the law of nature. The law of nature needs a source of energy to push. There's no source of energy, and the light accelerates by itself. That's, that's what it means, nature. Nature is basically Hashem. Okay, let's continue, because time is almost run out. So it says like this. All the wealth ended up in Egypt thanks to Yosef. The Gemara say, okay, all the wealth of Egypt, we understand. We understand that. Why? Because the Pasuk in Bereshis Memzain, Genesis 47, what does it say? It It's a clear verse in the Torah. All the wealth of Egypt was in the hand of Yosef. So the Gemara say, okay, we cannot argue with the Torah. Cannot argue with the Torah. But how do we know that all the wealth of Canaan, of uh, Israel, and all the other countries also went to Egypt? Talmud Lomar, Vechol Haaretz Ba'u Mitzrayma. Vechol Haaretz Ba'u Mitzrayma. What does it mean, Vechol Haaretz Ba'u Mitzrayma? Kadur Haaretz, the whole world. The whole world, the whole world came to Egypt. And they ended up putting all the wealth in Egypt. You should know one thing in, in the holy language, what we call Hebrew today, we have two words that are very similar. Aretz and Eretz. What's the difference between Aretz and Eretz? Ask the professors in the university, they probably don't know. 
Watch the, it depends how you make the grammar, the nikud, nekudot. Ah, it's no difference. No, it's a big difference. When you say eretz, you mean earth. When you say aretz, you mean the ground. Eretz, aretz. But when you say aretz, aretz, it's also the earth. Aretz, it's the earth. Eretz by itself, it's the earth. Aretz, it's the ground. This is the rules, secrets of the divine language of Hashem. So, that's what it says in the Pasuk, Tole Eretz Al Blima. It doesn't say Tole Aretz Al Blima. Tole Eretz Al Blima. Right? And the Aretz, Aretz is the land where you stand on the ground, anywhere, ground, stone, whatever it is, that's called Aretz, Arza. Okay. Now, when the nation of Israel went from Egypt to, to, to the desert, they took it with them, all this wealth. They took advantage on the Egyptians. Two years ago, the president of, uh, of Egypt, Mubarak, and all his genius advisors, they said on the news there, <laughs> I, I didn't, I, when I read it, I didn't believe that I read it. They said that the Jews owe Egypt, Israel owe Egypt, they made a calculation, trillions of dollars for all the wealth that they took out when they came out of Egypt. <laughs> Why? Because Muhammad and Ahmad and Mustafa, what books they read besides the Quran? The Torah. The Quran said that the Torah is holier than the Quran. It's in the Quran. It says, if you have questions, you go to the Torah and ask. They receive it from Hashem. No, so there's no contradiction about the Torah. So they read in the Torah that the Jews were in their land. One thing they don't tell their people, that the Egyptians that live in Egypt today and the Egyptians that live in the time of Pharaoh is two different people, two different nations. It's not. The Egyptians today are children of Ishmael, Arabs. In the time of Pharaoh, they were not Arabs. It's a different nation. They disappeared in the world. They assimilated with the rest of the countries. Why do you get assimilated? Because there used to be a king. His name was Sancheriv. He made a revolution in the whole world. He moved all nations in big wars. He threw them to exile. And all nations got involved one with the other. So you don't know who it is today. If you have a goy, you don't know. Maybe it's Amalek. Maybe it's Knani. Maybe it's Emori. You don't know who he is. We all got mixed. All the roots got mixed. You don't know anymore what. So first of all, even if we owe them, we don't owe them. We owe this nation that disappeared from the face of the earth. So the Egyptians today don't have a point. However, 2,000 years ago, they had a point. The Gemara said that they came and they claimed that the Jews have to pay them for all the donkeys full of gold and wealth that they took from Egypt. They borrow and they never return. So the Gemara said there was one Jew you know, crippled, Ktia Bar Psisa his name. Ktia, Ktia, like his head, his leg is chopped. He's a hunchback. You know, he looks like half homeless. This is the way the Gemara describes him. So he comes to the Chachamim, imagine he comes like this. Rabbi, Rabbi, let me go to court and fight. I argue with them. If I lose, you can come later and say, well, this is our representative? Who is this homeless? <laughs> Send him away. He's not in, he doesn't have any authority to represent us. From all the rabbis we have, we're going to send this guy. <laughs> He's saying about himself. If I win, I win. 
and the enemy crushed them. Who was the judge? Alexandros Mokdon. Alexandros, he occupied the whole world. So now they come to him and say, your, your majesty, now you're the master of the land. Make them pay us for all the money they stole. Look, we both believe in the same Torah, no? So he told them, okay, they have a point. We owe them for the jewelry. But let's calculate 210 years of slavery of millions of people, 16 hours a day. <laughs> oh, when they heard the bill, they say, okay, okay, take the jewelry. <laughs> it's a true story. It really happened in front of Mokdon. Anyway, when they heard that, they ran away. It reminds me that there was a case in a base din, one caterer in Israel. There was a meal of Pidyon Aben, redemption of the firstborn, right, from the Kohen. So you know that Saudat Pidyon, it's count like 84 days of fasting. We're going to fast in 48 hours Yom Kippur. It's one day of fast. You participate in a meal of Pidyon Aben. It's, it's like, it's not exactly like, you know, it's like 84 days of fasting. How do they know it? Pidyon, it's pay dalet, pay dalet, 84. So it's very interesting. The, the, the point of the Pidyon, that the guy made it at 4 o'clock. The Kohen is time to come 4 o'clock after work. He invited all the family, and he invited catering, caterer. So it was 50,000 shekel, the meal. It's like $12,000. For the whole, you know, it's like a big thing. He made a big thing for 300 people, whatever it was. 4 o'clock, 4.30, they finished the pidyon. No food. The food did not arrive. All the people were looking to, for the food. They see all the tables are set. Nothing is on the table. Within half an hour, between 4.30 and 5, almost all the people left, except the nearest, the closest relative that still stayed. Some people saw, and they know, they knew this gemara, that you have to eat in a pidyon aben if you wanted to count 84 days of fast. So they took from the shul, they saw some uh, bread. They took the bread with salt. They made a mozi, 10 people together. They ate the bread. They made birkat amazon and left. Stale bread they were eating, leftovers. Just that the mitzvah will count, that they ate from pidyon aben. That's the whole thing, the meal. 5.30, the caterer arrived. And he delivered all the food. So now they, they decided to go to base Din. Kader wanted money. He claimed he has excuses. The guy said he don't deserve anything. So if it was, let's say, uh, it was uh, $50 a person, so the owner of the, the father of the baby is willing to give him $30 a person instead of 50 And the caterer said, no, I'm will, I agree that I have to compensate you, but I'm, I'm willing to receive 40 not 30. 40, 10, 10, I give you a discount. 10, 20% off for coming late. After all, it wasn't 100% my fault. So he said to him, what? All the meal you brought, I had to send to places. I had to beg people to come take it. Some of it I took home. It didn't serve my, I only ordered it for the pigeon. Why do I need all this food at home? So they come to base Dean. So he's arguing the caterer. He said, no, 40 is my best offer. <laughs> So that guy say 30, if, if he let me pay only 30, fine, <laughs> what a fool. So what do you think was the verdict? Zero. Zero. 
Ah? No, no. What do you say? Zero? He doesn't have to pay him anything? I gave you a hint by saying full. No? Obviously, he was offering too much. But I didn't mean zero. So how much he has to pay? No, that's Hefke already. It's going to go to the garbage. I don't take it. It's going to the garbage. So the Dayanim say, okay, so you're willing to compromise? Say, yeah, we're willing to compromise. So the Dayan says to him, if you wouldn't offer to compromise, you would win big time. Not only you wouldn't have to pay anything, he would have to pay you for the embarrassment and the damage that he caused you. <laughs> Food, for sure, for free. It says it's garbage already, that's it. He would have to pay you, and we have to decide how much embarrassment you had. And he showed him in the Torah, in cases like this, that he had to pay. In the end, he paid him 30. Felt like a fool. He had him 30, 30, 60% from the price he paid. He wasn't supposed to pay anything. So just before we finish, so, so the Jews took everything, whatever they took, and they went, and they went to Eretz Israel. I want to ask you a question. With all due respect to Hashem, it doesn't look good. If Hashem gave us man in the desert, the clothing grew up with us, right? The clothing, you never had 40 years, you didn't need to replace clothes. The shoes grew up with the feet. They had water free. They had dry clean free. Seven clouds, that's the halite of Sukkot. Read in Shulchan Aruch, one from the top, one from the bottom, one from each direction, right? And one that is coming in between the, the, the clouds and does the dry clean and make the ground straight. Miracles like no eye can ever see in history, perhaps ever again. With all this, they needed to take gold from them? What do they need gold and jewelry and money for? What? In those days, you didn't need money. You don't need money. What do you need money for in the desert? It's a burden to carry 5 or 10 or 20 kilos of gold on your, on your back for 40 years. It's a burden. What do I need this for? Imagine I go to a place. You, have, you, you, you took with you 100 pounds of gold. You landed on the moon. <laughs> what are you going to do with that? You cannot buy anything. No cars there. No show-off. Who are you going to show off to? <laughs> or you're in an island in Zimbabwe, somewhere in the island, in a jungle, hundreds of miles of jungle, man, baboons, chimpanzees, and you have a lot of gold on your back. One way or the other, it will take you a day or two to realize that this gold you bury it somewhere. <laughs> it's, I'm going like, to carry it with me. Well, I have fruit, I have as much as I want. Animals are all for free. I'm going to try to kill them and eat. What do I need is gold. There's no people here. I'm alone. The money only has a value in a place that you can do something with that. So why did they need this? Huh? Compensation. He saved our evening. You didn't hear what he said. The good he showed up. He came very late. He came to the right, in the right timing to answer my question. The Gemara says, That's all the gold 
that they used to build the first temple. Without it, he couldn't, he couldn't make the temple. There's no gold in Eretz Israel. Remember what happened to the gold? It went all to Egypt. Now you need to return it. How are you going to build it? But they didn't give up. They retaliate. The king of Egypt, his name was Shishak. He came and attacked Yerushalayim and took it away from Rechavam. In the fifth year of his kingdom, Shishak came on Yerushalayim, on Jerusalem, and he stole all the treasures. Everything he took, he did not leave one coin. Kush is the son of Ham. Noah had a son, his name is Ham. Ham had four sons. Four sons he had. When Noah woke up, after he was drunk, he cursed Knaan. Knaan was the fourth son of Ham. He, he didn't curse Ham. Why he didn't curse Ham? Ham sterilized him. That's the right word, right? He made him unable to have kids. Sterilized him. Ham saw that I already have two brothers, Shem and Yefet. Jeff in English and Sam. Sam, Jeff, and Ham. Ham saw I already have competition here. Two brothers to share my father's wealth. Noah was very wealthy. Remember, they started the whole world. Everything was theirs. So now... He said, I already have two brothers that I have to split with them. Each one of us will take a third from our father's wealth. Let's sterilize him that he won't have more kids because the way things are going, he can have another 50 kids. We have to share to each one of them. Emasculate. So he emasculated his father. So when Noah opened up his eyes, he knew it's him, but he didn't curse him. He cursed his four sons. Measure for measure. You made me unable to have a fourth kid. I'm cursing your fourth son, Knan. But the secret here that Knan was the one who called his father, come see grandpa. He's drunk, naked in a tent. Come see him. He's the one who gave him the idea. He got the curse. Who are those four, uh, four sons? One of them, his name was Put. One of them, his name was Mitzrayim. One of them, his name was Kush, and one of them, his name was Knaan. Kush and Knaan, they got the curse to be slaves. Kush means Kushim. Kushi in Hebrew, it means a black person. Black person. When you say, when you say in Israel, Kushi, people get offended. Why they get offended? Because they are ignorant. They don't know Torah. If they knew Torah, they knew this is the most proper world to call black people. It's not a bad word. This is the word, the way, this is the name that Hashem gave them. They are from the nation of Kush. Kush, Kushi. Sin, Sini. Right? Israel, Israeli. That's how it is. That's not, not a bad word. In Israel, you say Kushi, they look at you like you're a racist. No, I'm just saying the, the real name in the Torah. No, what can we do? So anyway, Kush, so now the king of Kush came to a war Everybody wants the treasure of Bet HaMikdash. 
סוררדי די זרח איזנם, זרח, מלך כוש, came to attack שישק the kivron of Egypt, and he took it from him. Then came Asa, Asa, Asa came and took it from Zerach, and sent it to Adrimon ben Tavrimon. What names they had, no? Don't call your kid Tavrimon, I hope. Ba'u bnei Amon, the nation of Amon came and took it from Hadrimon. Ba'u Shafat, who took it from Amon. Ba'ya munach ad achaz, Yoshafat is already Israel. And it was there until the generation of Ahaz. Then came Sancheriv that I told you he made a revolution in the whole world and stole it from Ahaz. How many hands it replaced, all this treasure. Then came Hizkiyahu 2,600 years ago, King Hizkiyahu, and took it from Sancheriv and left it for Tzitkiyahu. No? That's the end of it? No, not at all. Then came the Kasdim. Ur Kasdim, right? Abraham was there in Ur Kasdim. The Kasdim took it from Tzitkiyahu. Then came the Persians. The Persian came, a Parsim, and took it from the Kasdim. No, so the, now the Persian has it. Came the Greeks and took it from the Persians. So now the Greeks have it. Came the Romans and took it from the Greeks. All these empires that rise. And until today, it's in Rome. If you go to the Vatican, nobody will let you in, but I know one rabbi here from Manhattan that went in. There are seven floors under the ground full of Jewish treasures. Some of that treasure is this, the menorah, the things, the gold of Beta Migdash, everything. Some of it, it's books. Books of the Rambam, original handwriting. Each page is a million dollars at least. It's 800 years old, 1,500 years old, 1,200 years old. Handwriting of the rabbis that they rubbed over the history, everything gathered from all, all directions into the Vatican. Vatican is Rome. Rome. One guy told me, and we'll finish with this story, one guy told me that uh, they have a television show I don't know, you probably knows better. Something about the mafia in New York, the Italian mafia. What's the name? Soprano? Sopranos, the mafia, right? The sandak of the mafia. Okay, yeah, yeah, no, no. So it says to me, one time I was watching this movie, it says to me, it's very interesting. I was laughing when I heard that story. So he said that they show one episode over there that there is a Hasidic guy, Hasidic guy, and the Hasidic guy has a daughter that married a Hasidic guy. You know, let's say Satmer, his daughter got married to a Satmer, whatever. And the Hasidic guy owned an hotel. And they married for 20 years. His son-in-law, in a way, became like his partner in a hotel. So when he, they, the daughter wanted to get divorced. So he say, I only give you a get if your father give me half of the hotel, signed for me that half of the hotel is mine. I'm not going out of anything without this marriage, 20 years, I go out with nothing, no get. So the Hasidic guy went to these mafia people, the head of the mafia, and sent them to this Hasid, to his son-in-law, you know, to put a gun to his head, 
and you know, to get him out of, to give a get without getting anything. So they torture him, they beat him up, they burn him, I don't know, they kill, whatever they did to him is not giving up. So they said, we never saw such a person. They call up the Hasid, the father, and say, where did you get this guy? <laughs> we put a gun, we tortured him, we did this to him. He doesn't give up. He said, yeah, you kill me, I'm not, giving, I'm not signing any get. So this is where the guy comes and tells me the story. So he says to me, listen what happened over there. So <laughs> the guy say, what, I made his hotel successful and now he want to throw me with nothing? I, I worked there for 20 years. When I got there, the hotel didn't want nothing. I deserve it. So they say, I don't care. You have a point. You don't, we are, our job is to get it out. We're getting a third from it. Whatever we make you sign, we get a third of that hotel. Whatever, a third, 20%, they get commission. So the guy told them, <laughs> the Egyptians occupied the world and tortured the Jews. They disappeared from the world, and the Jews are still here. The Babylonians occupied the world. They, they tortured the Jews. They disappeared, but the Jews are still here. The Greeks, same story. The Persians, same story. The Philistines, the Romans occupied the world. They tortured the Jews. They disappeared, and we are here. Where are the Romans? So the mafia guys say, you're looking, you're looking at them, you idiot. <laughs> we are the Romans. We are the Italians, the mafia. So the guy, the mafia guy knew that he's Roman. Not only we read in the Gemara that the Romans is in Italy. They know. You go to the Italians, they know they are Romy. Ro- Ro- yeah, Roma, pizza, Roma, pizza, Romy, same thing. <laughs> it's funny. Ah, sometimes they do something, they don't even know what they say. All right, anyway, we're done for today. And Bezrat Hashem, we continue next week. We still didn't finish this Masechet. Bezrat Hashem next week. Baruch Adonai Lo'olam. Amen v'amen.